This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. In the past 24 hours, CrowdStrike has processed more than 1 trillion security events. That's 35 million events since I started this sentence. That isn't just big data, that's CrowdStrike data. CrowdStrike's engineers are pioneering the future of the cybersecurity industry and working at an incomparable scale while solving some of the toughest challenges in technology. CrowdStrike is a team that makes a difference every day, protecting customers around the globe from the world's most sophisticated adversaries. If you want to take your passion for technology and purpose-driven work and make it a superpower, join the company that's on a mission that matters by visiting CrowdStrike.jobs. Thank you, CrowdStrike, for sponsoring this episode. What's going on, everyone? We are glad to have you back here in the Hacker Valley studio. One thing we've learned over time is as we create our habits, our habits tend to create us. But what happens if you have purpose and passion and then build good habits around them. Those two things can lead to building a superhero. Our guest this episode is Jarek Beeson. Jarek has built great habits around his passion for cybersecurity and technology to realize his dreams. In this episode, we speak to Jarek about what that journey was like, what were the obstacles, and where is he at today. Jarek is a mentor to many and a great leader. We're sure you'll love this episode. Let's jump right into it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. In the studio today, we have Jarek Beeson. Jarek is the Chief Information Security Officer at Epic. Chris and I also had the opportunity to speak with Jarek at the SANS Cybersecurity Leadership Summit panel. And that's also where I learned about Jarek's podcast that he hosts called Cyberside Chats. There's much more about Jarek and his background, and I'm looking forward to jumping into it. But Jarek wanted to say welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. This is a, a bucket list item, and I'm happy to check it off. <laughs> we are happy that you're checking it off as well. We had such a good, very public conversation with Sand. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Sure. I am the Senior Vice President and CISO over at Epic. We're a legal services company. My background is... I think unique today, but won't be unique in the future in that my entire career has been in cybersecurity. I got my bachelor's in cyber, got my master's in cyber. I got all those Mm. certifications and acronyms that people seem to care about in cyber. I've worked on the professional services side for a product company. I was a leader in the consulting space, and now I'm trying my hand on the other side of the fence as a a practitioner. And so far, I'm, I'm loving it. On that note, we don't really get to speak to many people that have started their career in cybersecurity, especially with a cyber degree. And right now, there's a lot of effort going on with breaking into cybersecurity, people learning about the field and, you know, being curious about if the degree programs and certifications are worth following and will lead to a successful path. What was your experience jumping into cybersecurity? Why did you choose it as your bachelor's? You know what? I was one of those people that got lucky and my hobby became my career. 
I uh, was always a tinkerer. I was always playing with things. One day I tried to connect to my computer upstairs from downstairs. I was successful and the light went off. I wondered what else I could connect to. Got into a little bit of trouble, but eventually found the right way. And um, I needed to get a piece of paper to get into the door. That's just the way it was. That's the way it is in a lot of places. And I chose to go to ITT Tech. I got accepted to UCLA and to some other you know, more prominent schools, but ITT Tech was the quickest path to my goal. It gave me an opportunity to have more practical experience. A lot of universities teach theory, but they don't actually teach you how to set up a server, how to configure a server, how to configure a router. And that's what ITT Tech offered me. And one of the things that I can say is my time spent outside of school is what's really helped my career more so than the time I spent within those walls. So let's double click that initial experience for a second. You wanted to connect two computers together. Walk us through that that story and what was going on in your mind once you got that computer to work? So let's take it back. I was nine years old. <laughs> I was downstairs in my bedroom where I had a computer, but Duke Nukem was on the computer upstairs and my dad would not let me play it without him. I was a mischievous kid, as many kids were, and I <laughs> wanted to try to figure out how to connect to it. Um, long story short, it was a basic TCPIP network that was set up. We did not have one set up at the time, uh, but it really opened my eyes to the fact that you could connect to computers that aren't necessarily within your proximity. And then I started to think with tools like VPN. And a lot of the time, passwords were the basic admin password that came with the box at the time. So it wasn't really difficult. I'm not going to take a lot of credit for doing anything sophisticated, but it did open my eyes to the possibility of people connecting to computers that they should or shouldn't to remotely. I like the fact that you also mentioned that you got into some trouble because I could really relate to that. I was doing a lot of things online and with computers that I wasn't necessarily supposed to when I was younger, but it really taught me OPSEC. It taught me how to not only become a better attacker and defender, but it also taught me how to look at things differently from a security perspective to either hide actions or find actions. What was that like for you? Did you spend more time like attempting to connect computers, break into computers? What was the experience that led you into wanting to pursue it as a career? So I didn't know it was a career option. That's not something that we got advertised. If you weren't in the military, you probably didn't even know cyber was a career path at the time. Right. And I was just trying to connect to computers. I was trying to do stupid stuff like, can I change my grades in school? Can I, <laughs> can I mess with some friends? Can I send them some fake malware that looks like malware, but it really just, you know, gives them a, a blue screen of death. I don't know if that even happens anymore. And an ITT tech recruiter came to my school and said, we have a degree program for information system security. I had no idea what that was. As they described it, I said, that's what I'm doing in reverse. <laughs> and I had some conversations with them. They said they think this is the future. Lo and behold, they were right. And uh, I'm happy that I, I went down that route. So what does it mean for you to be able to do this for a living? Because I'm sure where you started is definitely not where you're at today. As you've kind of gone through this journey of technology and cybersecurity, what has been the biggest realization for you? I see so many people that have to go to work every day, and I genuinely feel like I get to go to work every day. And it, it fuels me. It's provided job security for myself. It's provided financial security for my family. It's opened up doors that I never thought could ever be opened. So it, it's a really a privilege for me. 
I feel the exact same way. I, I often say that I'm a son of cybersecurity because it's done the exact same things for me. It was there for me when I was a teen and, and bored or lonely, and it's been here for me as an adult and providing for me and my family, which is great. As you progress throughout your career even further, what keeps you in? Like, And also, what keeps you motivated? I'm sure it's been quite some time since you were nine years old playing with that first computer all the way up till now. What has really kept the interest there? The fact that the field is it's always changing and there's always a new challenge to overcome. And sometimes it's a technology challenge. Sometimes it's the threat actors. I think the preeminent challenge today is getting people into the field. So many people want to get in, but they're having a hard time. And a lot of times it's people like myself that are already in the field that are holding others back. So right now, my passion is really helping others get their foot in the door and get an opportunity and get a chance. In the future, it may be one of a myriad of other things, maybe issues that are already here today that are just going to become exacerbated over time, or potentially a new thing that we haven't even thought about or haven't even considered. But that's the joy of this field is you can't be stagnant if you want to progress. You can't be stagnant if you want to stay as good as you are. And that's really important for anyone that wants to join. And also for myself, because I get bored easily. And this field won't allow you to get bored easily if you're interested <laughs> in it. A hundred percent. One of the things that we quite often mention as the best skill to have in cybersecurity is mental agility. Being able to take the skills and experiences that you've had over your career and even in your life and be able to apply it to new problem sets, to apply it to new technology. I'd like to double click again on something that you just mentioned. You mentioned that there are people in the industry that are keeping people back, keeping people from coming into our community. What is your perspective on that? Why are people keeping others out of the community? And what are the best ways that we can start to be more inclusive and bring people in? It's interesting that you that you asked that question because I didn't expect you to go there. But here's the deal: for me, it's it seems as if people got in the industry one way, and they think that everybody else should get in that same way. But the reality is, anyone that it is in security was given a chance because nobody had security experience before they were given their first security job. I recognize that. I see that. And I want to give people opportunities. I want to give people chances that they otherwise may not have had. I think that. We are in a still fairly new field, so there really is no true qualification certification that says you are ready for this job. You know, in accounting, you can get a CPA and you are clearly able to do the job of an accountant as a CPA. The way the certifications are done today, with all the training material that's out there, with all the boot camps that are out there, you don't really have a true picture of someone's skill set based off of that certification. And no matter how many interviews you get, you're never really going to see how that person, you know, handles the fire that they're going to walk right into. And even with CISOs, the same thing goes for CISOs. Like I always say, you know, CISOs are like tea bags. You never know what's in them until they're in hot water. And, <laughs> and that's what it is. Like you can have the best interview ever until they're in the middle of that incident. You don't really know what you have. And people don't want to give people that, that opportunity because, Quite frankly, there aren't many opportunities to bring people in. So when you get it, you want to make sure that you choose the best candidate. And we are searching for unicorns. And those unicorns are hard to find. And that just leaves a lot of jobs open. 
you're really speaking to my heart right now. And you're speaking to my heart because I just had my brother-in-law visit. He's around 25. He's recently graduated and he's applied for a few cybersecurity jobs. But his ego has been hurt a little bit because he's been rejected from the jobs that he had an interview for. And I keep telling him like, hey, this isn't it. You have to keep on doing these things. But I think as his brother-in-law, maybe he doesn't necessarily listen to me with keen ears as much. But if you were to be speaking to him, if he was speaking to you and he described he just got turned down for a few jobs, what would be your recommendation for things to look at and to re-inspire that person? So I don't know his entire background, but the first thing I'd ask is why do you want to be in cybersecurity? If it's for the salary, then I don't really have much for you because to me, passion is what drives anyone's progress and ultimately will keep you in the field because every cyber person knows there are long Friday nights. I don't know why the attackers choose Friday night, but it's you always just know a Friday. It's going to be a Friday that sucks. Right. And there will be a number of them. And over time, you're just not going to want to stick around for, for that type of life unless it's something that you're interested in. So first thing is, you know, why are you wanting to get into this field? And if it's, if it's passion, then number one, there are more than one way to get into this field. Sometimes it is through IT, getting your foot in the door. Security teams are always looking for security people. And if we have to hire someone, we definitely are more apt and more prone to pull someone out of IT that's demonstrated an ability, that's demonstrated that they can show up to meetings on time, demonstrated that they can communicate and bring them in and make them the next analyst or engineer, whatever it may be. I think people think they're going to jump right in. And there are plenty of people that do, but the majority of people in cyber did not start in cyber. So there's no reason why the new generation should expect to just start in cyber. If it's if it's there, go for it. But if it's not, take one of the other paths that many others have taken as well. So you mentioned a really, really good point, and that's the point of the people that are the most successful in cybersecurity are the ones that have that passion to do the work. But what about the people that are just doing it for a paycheck. They say, wow, you know, I am going to do this for the money, make a good living, but they just never live up to that potential because they don't have an interest in it. What would you advise for those people that really, they might be a sock analyst and they're not really that good at it. What would you mention for them to be a little bit more fulfilled in their day-to-day -day work? Should they just leave cybersecurity altogether or should they look for another avenue within cybersecurity? When we talk about soft skills, I say I can't teach people the things that their parents should have taught them, right? And when we're talking about passion, I can't teach you to be passionate about something. But if you do want to stick in the field, if you do have the skill and the aptitude to provide value, you're most likely going to be best suited in a large organization where you can hide. But in the smaller organizations where we need people to wear multiple hats, we need people to provide input and value outside of coming in and checking a list every day. You're going to have to stay on top of the newest threats. You're going to have to stay on top of the latest technologies. You're going to have to spend time outside that eight to five. As much as we talk about work-life balance, cyber people want to spend time outside of the eight to five. They don't feel like they have to. And if you aren't that person, then if you're going to say an industry, because we need you, right? I'm not trying to kick anyone out the industry, but maybe you're better suited in a larger organization where you can be a number. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting to, I guess, shift into that. Before someone does, I'm sure they might even have the question, what is a passion? Like, what does that mean? Especially for someone that hasn't really felt that tuning fork of a calling. What does passion mean for you? I love that you use the word calling because that's, that's what it is. 
You know, when I look at my wife, I say, there was nobody else. It was you. It was always you until I met you, right? And and that's how I feel about cybersecurity. It was it. I just needed to find it. And I don't know, I'm kind of altruistic. And I feel as if, you know, I could save the world one way or shape or form. Cybersecurity just happens to be my way of doing that. You know, some people choose the path of a police officer, go to the military, whatever it may be. And, and for me, that's what it is. I feel good about the work that I'm doing. And once again, I feel like I get to go to work. They, what do they say? You know, if you love your job, you never work a day in your life. I don't yep. necessarily agree with that because I, I work hard some days, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I still want to work hard those days. And, and I look forward to those opportunities. And there's a butterfly that gets in my stomach every time some suspicious event comes across and we get to dig into it. That's that's just who I am. And that's probably why I've been in cyber my entire career and don't see myself ever leaving. I resonate with that so much because I feel like at this point, Ron and I, the work that we're doing, we're working our butts off, but it's work that we get to do. We look forward to that Monday morning, popping on to the the laptop and doing the work that we felt like we were brought here to do. What does that day look like for you? Let Take us through a perfect day with Jarek where you're making that impact in cybersecurity. You're changing the game. What does it look like for you? Do you have any rituals that you get prepared for the day? Do you work out in the morning? What are some of those tenants that you take into your life to make sure that you're your best every single day? Yeah, I'm pretty rigid in my in my structure of my day because there are so many things that I want to fit into my day. Uh, I start off every morning getting my kids ready. Uh, that's just the that's the life of someone with four kids. So I get my kids ready. I, I take them to to school. And in the process of taking them to school, I take in a podcast, usually the cybersecurity headlines of the day, just so no one asks me a question about cybersecurity from the day before that I'm not prepared to answer. It's mm. it's never good when multiple people or whomever come up to you and talk about some current event that you're not aware of in cybersecurity, especially if it's a big one. So I take in those headlines. And then when, when I start my day off, every day is a little bit different. I usually have meetings with you know different executives. I meet with someone on my team every single day, but I set aside 30 minutes a day for LinkedIn. And people thought that that was kind of crazy that I do that, but I learned so much from LinkedIn. People put so much content out there. I am a better security practitioner because of my time on LinkedIn. And then I also leverage the platform on LinkedIn to really, I guess, crowdsource cyber strategies and then democratize those strategies because I feel as if there's so much good information in all of us. And if everyone took in every podcast, if everyone took in every talk and everyone took in, you know, every conference and was able to spread that information out there, we would all be better, but that's not possible. So I use a little bit of a platform that I have to constantly put that type of information out there for new beginners to season CISOs to legal people, you name it. And I make sure that I spend time doing that. Once a week, I meet with a new vendor every single week, a vendor that I've never met with, just because I want to hear about something innovative that someone else is tackling, something someone else is doing. Uh, It keeps me on the edge. I don't make all the technology decisions. I let my team do that. But I want to be in the know. As a CISO, you kind of step back from some of the technical things. But for me, it's important that I'm still aware of what's going on out there. A lot of the time I find out about new threats that I didn't even know existed just from talking to vendors that have come up with solutions for those threats. So that's just a little bit about what I do. My week is planned ahead of time. Of course, ad hoc meetings come up and so forth. But I always say that I plan around my priorities. I don't prioritize my plans. And I make sure that I check off all the things that need to happen throughout the week. 
Oh, I love that. That's so structured, but you know, still loose, loose enough to to do the things that you should be doing and that you want to be doing. And one of the things that Chris actually taught me, well, at least that I adopted from him, was this idea of burnout. And burnout is when the tasks that you are doing are out of alignment of your purpose, the things that you actually want to do and that you feel as though you were sent here to do in the first place. I'm sure as a CISO, you find yourself moving in a million directions. How do you ensure that the tasks that you're, that you're doing are within alignment of what you feel like you should be doing and avoid burnout ultimately? Yeah, you guys are asking really good questions right now, and I have philosophies <laughs> on all of these. So there's this concept of work-life balance. I don't believe in work-life balance because you can't have equal balance for everything, right? I'm not going to work out for the same amount of time that I'm at work. Those, those two don't go in together. So I'm more about work-life harmony. And I want to make sure that everything just works together and there's enough flexibility in that. And that's why I go back to planning my priorities and not prioritizing my plans. So a good example is I spend at least two hours with my kids every day after school. That time I am not available for work. Nobody can contact me. If there is an absolute horrible fire, they can text me and I'll join. But for any other reason, you cannot contact me. And that is how I stay centered. That is how I keep my family life solid. And I am still energized and enthused about, you know, my job and the work that I do. And then I'll I'll hop on at eight o'clock if I need to or anything along those lines. But by prioritizing the things that really matter most to me, everything else falls into place. And that's just one example of something I prioritize. The vendor meetings are something that I prioritize. I prioritize my one-on-ones. I make it a habit of not canceling my one-on-ones as much as possible just because it sends a bad sign to my team, right? I want them to know that they are important to me. And I meet with every single person on my team, either ad hoc or scheduled. And my team is getting larger and larger, but it's important that I'm not this CISO sitting on this pedestal that you look up to and want to be like one day. I'm in the trenches with you on a regular basis. And I find that as a millennial leader of millennials, that is how we communicate. It's a little bit different when you look at the baby boomers and the Gen Xers, the structure and the way that they approached communication and leadership was different. And I find that baby boomers try to lead millennials like baby, baby boomers and it doesn't work. And that a lot of the time they're jumping ship and they go to the millennial like companies, the tech companies and so forth. So I try to create that environment as much as possible and stay as relatable as possible. And all those things together, I love it. It keeps me happy and I get to do things my way. You know, you speak about being relatable and there's so many different levels to that. I think you're relatable not only in the way that you communicate, but you're also relatable because you're ingesting the information about the emerging threats. You're ingesting information about the new solutions that are out there. I just did a roundtable, an executive roundtable about zero trust. And there are so many people that are trying to get on this zero trust bandwagon, especially in the government. The the new executive order for folks to get into zero trust is out there. There's deadlines for it. I'd love to hear your perspective on zero trust. What have you been doing in that space? Have you been doing any uh, ambassadorship for that, that philosophy? And where do you think we need to go in the future? So I've been on the zero trust bandwagon for about six years now. And when I first hopped on it, People said, you're not Google. You don't have Google's billions of dollars to completely rebuild your network. This is not feasible. I started looking at what Google did specifically and breaking it down into things that were more tangible and feasible for a typical organization. 
And over time, I realized that it was it was actually very feasible to do. And a lot of the technologies to support the zero trust ideologies were already in place. It was a mindset shift. So many times people look at the technology side of zero trust, but security practitioners have gone against the principles of zero trust for so long. I'll give you one example. Five years ago, maybe even more recent than that, if you're doing a security review of a tool or a project that you're putting in place and you say, is it going to be on network or off network? If it's off network, you have 150 controls. If it's on network, you have 100 controls because on network is presumed more secure. Well, we told the business that and we told them that on a consistent basis. Another thing we said was, you know, you, you can't prevent attacks, but you can detect attacks. I'm not saying that that's not true, but we've kind of thrown in the towel on prevention and put all of our eggs in detection. Zero trust kind of turns that over and zero trust swings that pendulum to you can actually do a lot more prevention by doing some of these things. And in the process, you're going to detect even more as well because you're increasing the amount of visibility that you have. So for me, zero trust is more of a mindset and an organizational change than a technology. And speaking of that mindset change, look at the supply chain, right? We talk about supply chain is woefully broken. Every security team knows the pain of filling out questionnaires, three, four or 500 questionnaires. And, you know, it's a point in time. You hope that they're telling you the truth. You cross your fingers unless you have the ability to go in and audit them. Most companies don't have that type of bandwidth. But what we're really doing is we are trying to see how likely this company is of getting breached. But Zero Trust says assume breach. So if I have to assume breach for myself, why does it make sense for me not to assume breach for my supplier? Right. If I now assume breach for my supplier, I look at the questionnaire process a little bit differently. I ask questions because I want to make sure that you have done some level of due diligence. But there is a point of I don't know, you can call it there's a point of diminishing returns when you look at the three, four or five hundred question questionnaires. You have exceeded that point of diminishing returns. I'm really more concerned with every one of my suppliers is going to have a bad day or they're currently having a bad day. What am I doing to make sure their bad day isn't my bad day? And I designed my architectures around that and put less emphasis on all the questions that I won't say they're meaningless, but they don't provide as much value as taking that approach. I think one of the ways that we can do that in cybersecurity is by taking a look into the future. And that's really by knowing the past, like you were describing some of the ways that we're not using this mindset. But when we're looking at mindsets or philosophies or even technology going forward in cybersecurity, what are some things that you're thinking of that maybe haven't hit mainstream yet that you're thinking about when it comes to architecture or just security program building? From a security program building perspective, um, I've been thinking a lot about, I touched on this earlier, around the generational differences and how we have to manage each generation a little bit differently. I think that will lead to better retention. I think it'll lead to better recruiting, just job satisfaction in general, and actually better behavior change. Um, if you approach a baby boomer with a TikTok video, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. If you approach someone that's just now coming into the workforce with that, they're going to be more apt to learn that way. And so you see these bite-sized security trainings coming around. Right? So I, I'm just looking at the people side of things because ultimately cybersecurity is a people business. And I don't feel as if we've studied people enough and addressed it in, in that regards. 
on the technical side of things, ransomware is here to stay. It's going to be here for a while. This whole idea of backup and disaster recovery, and you'll be good from ransomware. Hopefully people realize that's out the window because they're stealing the data first. The backups don't fix that. But I'm actually concerned about biometrics because more and more companies are storing those biometrics and those companies are going to be a target. And when those companies steal your biometrics data, there is no resetting that password, right? So I'm thinking that biometrics won't be the answer long-term because eventually that data will get stolen because history has shown if an attacker decides to focus on something, eventually they're going to get to it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm thinking about. That's a super interesting point in regard to biometrics, because you're right. You, those are some of the things you cannot change. You can't change the structure of your eyes. You can't change your fingerprints. So you're right. That's going to be a treasure trove of information for anyone. How do you balance being sort of like an experimental thinker? Because I'm sure there aren't a lot of people that have even thought about the biometric stuff. And then also when you mentioned, do you stay up to date on emerging threats? There are a lot of executives that feel like they don't have the time to really focus on the things as they come out. They usually rely on the people that are on their team to do a lot of that work. What is that piece of advice that you would have for those leaders that want to have that additional time to stay on the forefront of the emerging threats, the technology, and also have that time for that experimental thinking like you're doing? So I believe my job as a CISO is to lay out a strategy that my team can go and execute. And we'll look at that as a a linear path. My job as a CISO is to look around the corner. So hire the right people, equip the right people, develop the right people to run down the path that you have set for them. Allow them to weigh in on that path, you know, remove the obstacles from that path, but constantly be looking around the corner. I have to stay ahead of the threats. I have to look at where industry is going. And from a taking in information, I hire people that have an insatiable appetite for security information that are longtime learners. These are some of the things that I prioritize in my interviews. I don't ask a lot of technical questions. I leave those questions to the other people on my team. I want to get to know the person, the man, the woman. What is it that makes you tick? And when I hear and see those things, I trust that they are going to stay on top of the threats. And anything I do is icing on the cake. If I felt like I had to depend on myself for my team to be aware of the threats, we would be in trouble. So I can do it at my own leisure. And once again, it's a passion of mine. So I just genuinely want to do it. Incredible, Jarek. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to hop on the mics with us. For those that want to stay up to date with you and all the incredible things that you have going on in your world, what are the best ways that people can do that? Uh, The best way is LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn is where I'm fairly active. Um, I'm also on a mission to bridge the the gap between the legal and cybersecurity industries. And I'm doing that on, on our podcast. You know, they are the average cyber professional doesn't know a lot about cyber law and the average legal professional wants to learn about cyber, but there aren't very many bridges out there being laid out for them. And if there is content, it's too technical or not relatable. Uh, So my show is really meant at bridging that gap. If you want to know anything about that, feel free. Epic Cyberside Chats. It's on all your podcast platforms. Love it. And we'll be sure to drop the links to your LinkedIn and also your podcast for everyone to stay up to date and tune in. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Thank you. 
you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.